Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. This episode focuses on a discussion of publicly funded and operated healthcare in the United States. If this might seem a pipe dream with no national precedence in the US, the authors of a recent book, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs suggest it's not. They describe the current system of VA healthcare as a model for excellence and equity worthy of support among public healthcare activists. And because of the model it provides, it is of course under attack by the likes of the Koch brothers and others. Our veterans reviewed in the spring 2023 issue of New Labor Forum offers a broad examination of veterans affairs, as well as essential information about the cost, quality, and effectiveness of healthcare provided by the Department of Veterans Affairs. We turn now to a discussion with the book's three authors, policy analyst and scholar Suzanne Gordon, labor organizer Steve Early, and journalist Jasper Craven. The book's reviewer, healthcare activist Mark Dudzik, begins the conversation. It was really an honor to be asked to review this book because it takes a comprehensive deep dive into this corner of the uh, social safety net that doesn't always receive the exposure and analysis that it's due. Despite some of the differences between the VA program and other social programs, there's really major similarities, both in how those programs are structured around a public goods model and very major connections and similarities between uh, the politics of this program and other safety net and public goods programs. That is a constant stress towards privatization and marketization of services that were originally conceived as matters of public good and public rights. I mean, Suzanne, you've worked for years, you know, in the field of veterans health care and broader health care issues. And Steve, you're a veteran kind of labor person and labor reporter. And, you know, Jasper has extensive reporting and policy experience around these issues. So you kind of came together as a team. So uh, Suzanne, what brought you to this work and where do you think it's taking you? I was very interested in the VA because I've been a long time proponent of some form of, of socialized medicine of, of, you know, taxpayer funded healthcare system as opposed to just a, a payer, a single payer. When I began working in the VA and I began working in the VA because I have a long standing 
concern about and writing about and doing work on patient safety and teamwork. And the VA really takes that very seriously. So the VA combined my interest in teamwork in healthcare, patient safety in healthcare, and also creating a healthcare system that goes beyond some sort of insurance payer like Medicare. And then also I have a longstanding interest in military and foreign policy issues and, you know, an anti-war activist. And so looking at what happens to veterans in the military has been a longstanding concern of mine. And so this book combined all of those. When it comes to VA healthcare, the Veterans Health Administration delivers healthcare to about 9 million veterans. But, you know, if a veteran is getting health care for mental health care, that's benefiting his family, his children. The Veterans Health Administration also benefits all of us in that it trains, you know, most of American healthcare professionals in training, nurses, doctors, psychologists, uh, 70% of American physicians. It's the hub of the American healthcare training system. And that benefits every single one of us who sees a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a primary care doctor. You know, the, the American Association of Medical Colleges has said that the VA is irreplaceable in that regard. The VA is the biggest research powerhouse in the country after the National Institutes of Health. You know, the nicotine patch, the first implantable cardiac pacemaker, the first shingles vaccine, et cetera. And the VA is a model also for, um, it's the only system that negotiates pharmaceutical prices. There's a big article in the New York Times the other day about how the pharmaceutical industry is fighting talks about negotiating drug prices. The VA is a model that shows us how to do it. And then finally, there's the VA's fourth mission, which is to serve as a backup to the American healthcare system in times of national, in war, conflict, terrorist attacks, or, you know, regional, local, and national emergencies like COVID. The VA received non-VA patients in their hospital when hospitals were overwhelmed. I think it's really important for those of us who want to, you know, protect social programs to make it clear to people that the safety net is really a safety net for all of us. It's not just a safety net for poor people. I mean, any one of us can can get COVID, you know, and and they could go to a VA hospital in New York if NYU or Columbia Presbyterian was flooded with patients in their ICU. And, you know, I think one of the really important things about the VA is, well, unlike Social Security or Medicare, most people kind of know what Social Security does. Many people have benefited from it. Older people have benefited from Medicare, but most people actually know zero about what the VA healthcare system or benefit system does. It's a void. And so one of our jobs, I think, in Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute and, and in this book is to explain to people what the VA does because they have a negative impression or they have a, you know, like a void and then you, you know, the cokes come along and fill it with their toxic brew. So I think it's very important for activists and social justice to explain that there is a model of socialized medicine that works really well in the United States. It's called the Veterans Health Administration, and we better find out about it and promote it because the reason why the Kochs and all these other right-wing forces are trying to privatize it is because it works really well. And they don't want any working model of government programs that can be promoted to the public.
So what about this tension between universal and earned benefits? And, you know, again, we see a lot of that in the labor movement when people talk about universal health care versus, by God, we paid for these benefits with our wages, so we, we want to keep paying for them. You're absolutely right, Mike. There's a lot of parallels between the kind of conservative organizational circle the wagons around members only benefits behavior of organized labor and the veteran service organizations, uh, the so-called big six, the American Legion, the veterans of foreign wars, disabled American veterans, and several other longtime advocates for former service members. The labor movement, you know, is not going to be able, as you would agree, to sustain a system of job-based medical benefits, the negotiations, labor management conflicts, the strikes. There's just too much difficulty bargaining about these issues workplace by workplace, but we have some major unions still clinging to that approach rather than throwing the full weight of the labor movement behind the single-payer movement. And there's a parallel to that in the field of veterans affairs. The veterans organizations, as we document in the book, have sometimes even been resistant to expanding healthcare access through the VA to veterans who are currently ineligible for it. Only about half of the 19 million people who served in the military who are still alive today qualify for VA healthcare coverage or have it at the moment. Hundreds of thousands of people who were flushed out of the military and given other than honorable dischargers who should be eligible for VA care or excluded from it. But only a brave few veterans organizations have taken up the case of these veterans who have bad paper and can't go to the VA for health care. And other veterans organizations have acted like it was their fault that they screwed up and got discharged from the military and are now ineligible. So we argue in the book that both unions and veterans organizations need to think more broadly, that they're only going to be able to defend their past gains if they universalize these programs, whether it's access to free higher public education or a public health care system that should be available to all of us, not just people who serve in the military. Who wants to comment on sort of the GI bills and some of these other VA programs? legacy regarding racial equity and racial parity, you know, because there is a sharp debate about that. In fact, there was an article that, that I quoted in my review, and I, I can't recall the exact title, but it was something like the GI Bill was the most racist bill passed in the 20th century or something like that. You know, there is a sharp debate around these issues. And it's not just, again, not just confined to the VA, but confined to, you know, broad from, you know, the New Deal through a broad series of other social programs. Yeah, I can I can touch on that. You know, I mean, I think that the GI Bill is at once one of the most progressive laws ever passed, one that lifted countless Black families into the middle class. It's also one that in its implementation has historically denied Black veterans the proper care and benefits. I mean, it is quite progressive, I think, that after the Civil War, Black vets were opened up and, and given pensions and post-war health care. I mean, this was something that Frederick Douglass was pushing for very hard. He had a theory that, you know, if Lincoln would open up service to Black soldiers, they would, you know, potentially become eligible for more government uh, support. They would sort of gain a reputational boost as well, that hopefully the integration could create bonds, cross-racial bonds. And I think a lot of that did happen. 
what you did see, however, and what you have seen with every conflict is that because the system itself is often regionalized and because these benefit decisions are often, you know, made by employees at a fairly local level, it, it can be very easy for racism and discrimination to rear its ugly head. So, you know, this is something that the VA is only now starting to acknowledge this, this pretty dark history. There is an organization called the Black Veterans Project, which along with the Yale Law School has recently obtained a massive trove of veteran claims data. And they're in the midst of processing that data. And it, it appears clear that they're, you know, that if, that if you sort of crunch the numbers, that indeed Black um, veterans have been denied benefits disproportionately. So, you know, this, I think, is an important question and something that the VA really needs to prioritize. I mean, certainly things were particularly bad during the Trump administration. His second VA secretary, Robert Wilkie, was an avowed neo-Confederate who really, I think, permitted a pretty toxic racist culture across the VA. And this, this showed up at the top of the hierarchy and also in many VA facilities where Black veterans said that they were, and, and VA employees said that they faced racism in their in their day-to-day work. I would just add one thing, Mark. I mean, historically, I think it's a distortion to say the original GI Bill, you know, was as bad as some people uh, depicting it. I mean, the big fight in Congress in 1944, when it was passed before World War II end, was really over who would be eligible to be a, uh, a member of that 52-20 club, who could get as a returning service member, a year's worth of unemployment benefits. And all the Southern racists in Congress did not want returning African-American veterans to be on unemployment, collect unemployment benefits for a year and, and not face pressure to go back to work as sharecroppers or in some other kind of menial work. And the American Legion, which I'm no fan of, uh, stood up against that. And uh, the original GI Bill was passed narrowly and the unemployment benefits provision of it applied universally, which is not what the Southerners wanted. They wanted a carve-out, basically, like they got in Social Security for domestic and agricultural workers. They didn't get it in the GI Bill. So it was a struggle that I think, as Jasper said, enabled many veterans, many of them prominent people. Tony Bennett's friend, uh, Harry Belafonte, went on to become a leader in the civil rights movement, as well as a fabled musician and entertainer, was a beneficiary of the original GI Bill, along with a number of leading African-American uh, post-war politicians. Yeah, I think that Belafonte had this great quote, said that there would have been no banana boat song without the GI Bill. Um, you know, again, he, you know, had an opportunity, gave him the opportunity to explore an alternative path. Yeah, so, you know, again, the veterans issues really illustrate, you know, all of these kind of tensions. And, you know, we need to remember that the original GI Bill was passed, you know, at the height of the Jim Crow era. And that meant that we're trying to graft this universal program on a system that had racial discrimination built into it as a, you know, as its very purpose. And I think 
it particularly played out in opportunities to get housing under the GI Bill uh, because the housing market was so segmented and so racist. The uh, opportunities for Black vets to access financing and to have the same kind of access to housing that white vets did were, you know, hugely disparate. Was that a problem with the GI Bill or was it some kind of a broader problem with the, the Jim Crow system and the housing system? And I think that's really what activists really have to debate as we think about how we move forward in terms of building. We can look at the uh, record of the Veterans Health Administration when it comes to people of color and low-income people, because it's really the only health, I mean, all these other healthcare systems, every single, you know, big corporate healthcare system has some, you know, diversity, health disparities, you know, committee or, or institute or whatever, but you know, the VA healthcare system really takes it seriously and has the outcomes to prove it. And so within a racist society, if you look at VA health outcomes, there was one study that showed that veterans who were African-American veterans who had kidney problems and several particular kind of heart problems actually did better than Caucasians because they had access to healthcare through the VA. Under COVID, the VA was the only system that didn't have more deaths of people of color from COVID than any other healthcare system. More people of color and African-Americans got COVID but didn't die of COVID because they had access to healthcare and they had coordinated care. So I think we have to focus on these critical questions and we also have to focus on models that address them. And obviously, if you have a publicly funded healthcare system whose mission is not to enhance profit, you know, it can deal with these issues. I mean, the VA hires anthropologists to deal with these cultural issues. The VA has the best record when you talk about labor in worker safety. If you look at, for example, one of the big things that I've studied when I write about, wrote about nursing was the problem nurses have with nursing personnel, not just RNs, have with muscular skeletal problems from lifting, you know, patients and hospitals have resisted paying for lift equipment to help nurses and nursing personnel do this, even though the lift equipment will pay for itself in workers' comp claims in two or three years. The VA is the only healthcare system that has put lift equipment in all its facilities. So I think we have to think particularly, and I think we have to think broadly about, you know, what happens when you have not only a universal system, but a publicly funded system and a system that's mission driven. And I think the challenge in the VA, whether it's in benefits, and Jasper can talk about this a lot, or in healthcare, it's the staffing, you know, it's that we don't have enough staff and Congress won't adequately staff and do infrastructure improvements. But even given these problems of underfunding and understaffing and failure to improve infrastructure, the healthcare system has better outcomes than any other healthcare system in the nation. And also the kind of benefits and supports that the VA provides people, many veterans, and, and this is something that should be universalized, you know, veterans get vocational retraining 
if they have problems that with their current job. I mean, I interviewed a guy who was a sheriff in Hawaii who was had PTSD from being in the Iraq war. And they were he was told that he would never get better if he continued to be a sheriff because it was very triggering, as you can imagine, you know. And I think that the VA paid for him to get retrained as a construction worker, you know, and this is a very important thing. I mean, VA homelessness programs, VA is a system, whether it's on the benefit side or the healthcare side, that addresses not just a medical problem, but all the other kind of legal, social, educational problems, vocational problems that a veteran has. There's no other system in America that does it. And it seems to me that the problem isn't universal programs. It's universalizing these programs beyond the VA, you know, beyond a small subset of Americans who are the sort of deserving sick, the deserving poor, if you were, because they serve the nation. And I think one of the things that we raise in our book is that, you know, I mean, there's not only one way to serve your nation. And, you know, I think veterans could be convinced to allow the universalization of these programs if the expansion were more gradual, you know, like, like, if you look at VA healthcare, allow all veterans to be cared for at the VHA, not just people who have a service-connected disability or low income, allow their spouses, et cetera. So, you know, do this in a way that shows people that they don't have to hang on to these because they they won't be pushed out of the queue, you know, they will get the services. They need people need to be shown that these universalization, expansion of their programs won't jeopardize what they have. Because as we know, people are much more afraid of loss than they are you know, attracted to gain, and we need to show them they won't have a loss and that it will be a gain to them and their families and communities. So let's talk about healthcare policy for a minute. I'm active in the Medicare for All movement, as some of you are, single payer. And, you know, the argument in favor of Medicare for All as a reform versus other models was that, you know, basically you could keep the system that we have intact and just replace this network of private insurers um, with a single payer, you know, where the uh, the government steps in to equitably finance the system and and pays and plans it rationally. And that, that was a pretty persuasive argument. However, you know, there's been a debate within our movement that profiteering and corporatization has so much penetrated the healthcare system now that perhaps we need a more extensive change than just changing how and who pays these providers. These so-called nonprofit hospital chains, you know, are, have basically become nonprofit in name only. They're focused on markets and profiteering. Uh, their profits are converted into high wages for their key management and monopolization and other kind of antisocial behaviors, you know, and that permeates a system from top to bottom. So there's a number of people now in our movement who are saying that maybe we got to think about a more radical and extensive changes to the healthcare system in order to really, you know, transform it and back into a public good. I'm wondering what you all think of the lessons from the VA health services might be and whether they're applicable to our movement and whether there could be a sustainable path forward uh, from using some of those ideas. Well, I would look at this kind of in more practical terms. You know, we have two major 
and quite parallel, as we point out in the book, anti-privatization fights going on right now. One is to stop the privatization, which could lead to its ultimate dismantling, privatization of the VA. And the other is the undermining of traditional Medicare through the promotion of Medicare Advantage plans. And they both have followed a similar track over the last 10, 15 years to the point where billions of dollars are being diverted from both original programs, direct care by the VA and traditional Medicare, to the for-profit healthcare industry in the form of outsourcing of veterans' healthcare and in the form of Medicare Advantage plans, which cost uh, the taxpayers and the federal government more, provide problematic coverage for many people who sign up for them, but are a huge bonanza for the private healthcare interests. If we don't resist those two trends and win both of those anti-privatization fights sooner rather than later, we'll be spinning our wheels in any debate about whether we should shift Medicare for all as a demand to VA care for all, or we need a national health system rather than national health insurance. It'll all be quite academic, quite theoretical, and have no practical connection of our most prominent examples of public provision uh, public payment for healthcare coverage, Medicare for seniors, and VA care for veterans have been destroyed, you know, through privatization. So I think the immediate task is uh, stopping the bleeding, and we can continue this debate about the ultimate goal, but I wouldn't spend more time on that than <laughs> this very important defensive struggle on two fronts. And we have to have a, a defense, you know, and Jasper can talk about this Two, you know, right now in Congress, there's two terrible bills, one promoted by the hard right and the other promoted by John Tester, who is in a hard fight. He's a Democrat, but he's in a hard fight in Montana, you know, Republican state to further privatize the VA. And that fight is going to be really heating up in September, October, etc. And these two bills, one that Kester has promoted the other that has been promoted by Jerry Moran, who's from Republican from Kansas, and Kristen Sinema, the mm -hmm. so-called independent from Arizona, who is in her own struggle against a real veteran, uh, Ruben Gallego, in for the her Senate seat. And I think that really Medicare for all people and anybody interested in the future of healthcare has to join that struggle in the next several months. I also think that we need an offense. And the offense, I personally believe that, you know, by the time we get Medicare for all, I mean, we're, you know, let's just look at the time frame. We're not going to get it in the next two years. We may not get it in the next four years. By that time, how much takeover of the healthcare system will be done by, you know, private equity and other corporate entities. And I think that it's time for us to switch tax and talk about a national health system. I mean, you know, VA for all is a very good slogan and I'm, you know, kind of all for it in a way, but then one has to think about what does that mean? Because it does not mean that 330 million Americans descend on 170 VA hospitals. I mean, I think it means that you expand VA to all veterans to their gradually their families, maybe their communities in underutilized areas. But it also means that the VA as it exists is a model of the kind of healthcare we want 
and that we have to figure out how to emulate that model of population health, of social determinants of health. Of You know, the VA goes way beyond doctor's appointments. And so I think that a serious discussion needs to be had while we do what Steve says. You know, I think you, you can talk and walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. So I completely agree that, man, we have a lot of work of mobilizing to do in the next couple of months. But even if they win, the right wing wins, that doesn't mean the game is over and we have to keep organizing. But I do think that this discussion of the national health system within the healthcare reform movement is is very important. You know, the whole idea of single payer, which what was the original plan that PNHP came out with in was it 89 or 86 or whatever, that plan existed, was proposed in a very different historical moment. The VA w- then was not what the VA is today. It started to reform and, and really radically change in 1994. And also people, you know, the, the people were afraid of socialized medicine because they thought doctors would never go for non-fee for service. And because they were essentially all small business people, that's all changed now as doctors and everybody is becoming employees. So I think that this is a very healthy debate and then actually a debate that should be accelerated. Yeah, there's so much to dig into here, but we only have time for one more question. So um, we're going to go one last round with all of you. You know, the book really documents, you know, these massive attacks on the VA and puts them in a broader context. And in fact, there's been, you know, some significant privatization and erosion in the the VA system over the years, as you've all discussed. So the real, the question right now is, can the VA be saved? And uh, if so, how are we going to do it? And we'll start with Jasper this time and go backwards. Go ahead, Jasper. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a big question and it's a really vital one. I think really what needs to happen is the left needs to sort of do battle with the right over this fundamental idea of patriotism and veterans care and all of these sorts of things. I mean, for a number of complex reasons, the left has really ceded this ground to the right. And so what you see now are this sort of new class of right-wing politicians, many of them veterans who are actively attacking the VA, pushing for privatization and, you know, undermining the interests of their fellow brothers and sisters in arms. And so this has really warped this entire policymaking sphere. I mean, if you look at the Senate and House committees on veterans affairs, you know, if you sort of speak to aides privately, they'll sort of say that this is like a backbencher policy arena that, you know, if you're like a political star, you you sort of, you know, go for the sort of military policy committees where you can get more money from the major contractors and sort of shape your own position and receive more attention from the press. I mean, there's some interesting energy happening right now. There's this guy, Chris Deluzio from Pennsylvania, who's a vet. He's on the House Veterans Affairs Committee. He's very feisty. He's got a lot of energy. He's vigorously defending the VA. Frankly, you know, he needs to be elevated and and Democrats really need to just pour a lot more energy into VA policy so that they can do battle. Steve? Well, tackling the question of uh, how do you save the VA from the trade union perspective, the healthcare system that serves veterans is one of the most heavily unionized in the country. You have the 
American Federation of Government Employees, National Nurses United are both uh, major unions within the VA system. You also have the National Federation of Federal Employees and National Association of Government Employees associated with SEIU. You got four or five different unions. They came together very effectively early on in the Biden administration to resist a uh, VA facility closing plan that would have been disastrous. There was a terrific amount of grassroots mobilization to save specific facilities in a number of states. They built alliances with veterans and veterans organizations. I think that whole recent facility closing fight was a great model for what needs to go on all of the time to prevent the incremental privatization through outsourcing. And I think that, you know, the two largest concentrations of vets in the labor movement, those who work for the VA, those who work for the Postal Service, which also faces a major privatization threat, you know, if they can develop stronger allies in the rest of the labor movement and in the community, the communities that are served by these two public agencies, I think they'll also have greater success resisting privatization. Suzanne, last yeah, words. And, and I mean, I just think we have to have a, a save it and expand the VA strategy that talks about and helps the public understand that this is a system that doesn't just serve veterans, but serves us all. Because, you know, the public is not going to join the fight if they don't understand that, you know, it's not just a system that's saving 1% of the population, but it's a system that serves all of us through research, teaching, developing models of clinical care that benefit us all and also through fourth mission and and so forth. So I think that the VA is definitely not only worth saving, but worth expanding. And, you know, I think it should serve as a model of care for all of us. I mean, I wish I could get my care at the VA. I know exactly which doctors I go to. And I think it's really sad that more people in the so-called single-payer healthcare reform movement know more about Canada or the Netherlands than they do about the healthcare system down the street. And I think they should find out about it because they'd be very surprised. I mean, I was talking to a friend yesterday and I was chatting with her about all the great things the VA does. I, I was talking about teamwork, various techniques to help patients get better. And she was like, wow, that's so surprising. All I hear about the VA is how awful it is. And, you know, that's what people hear. And we have to begin to change that, all of us, every single one of us who's listening. Wow. Thank you all. Book, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.